3: The Other Hand is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hey Jim, great to be back for the latest edition of The Other Hand. I'm going to kick off today by talking about geopolitics and markets. And anxiety. I've spoken to a lot of people lately, particularly here in the UK, not least because a very prominent army general was pointing out that the UK has probably at the moment a third or even less total forces available to it than Russia is deploying in on the ground in Ukraine. And he said that the UK is in no position to fight a coming war with, with Russia. He wasn't predicting that we would be going to war with Russia, but he talked about the need for conscription. Should we see the need to go to war with Russia? So it was all pretty apocalyptic stuff and got a lot of people worried. There have been articles in newspapers only today written by mothers talking about not wanting their sons to be conscripted and being horrified at the thought. I think there's been far too much hype around these remarks he was speaking I think off the cuff he wasn't reflecting official policy but Downing Street Rishi Sunak's office has had to deny that there are any plans for conscription here in the UK it's all all a bit silly if you ask me but it does reflect a mood that is out there when you talk to people particularly young people I had one one such young person ask me only today about how depressed I was about the global situation Um, because he was telling me that everything that he sees in the news suggests to him that things are getting worse and that we are drifting into a July-August 1914 situation of just really sleepwalking into conflict. There have been several learned journalists talking in exactly those terms. Lewis Goodall, late of the BBC's flagship news program, current affairs program, Newsnight, now a very prominent broadcaster and in particular podcaster, talked precisely in those terms about sleepwalking into a situation akin to World War One. As I say, a lot of people seem quite anxious about this from the different perspectives of conscription, the geopolitical situation. And you and I have talked regularly over the last few podcasts about how geopolitics and that risk of conflict in particular is going to be a bigger driver of markets than it has been for a long time and indeed is likely to join interest rates and central bank policy, something else we talk about more conventionally as a driver of financial markets this year. So the one thing I wanted to offer today was to note first of all that the US stock market, 60% of the world, is at an all-time high as we speak. I think it's gone up every day this week. European equities are at something like 20, 25-year high. One or two of them, one or two individual markets are at all-time highs. I think the French might be, or getting close to it. Japan is at a three-decade high. And even the dear old UK market is is going up most days. Not very fast. It, it tends not to, for all of the reasons that you and I have discussed about the UK. But the the global stock market is by no means a perfect forecaster of anything. Nothing and nobody is, another theme of ours. But it is perhaps the greatest barometer there is of global sentiment. And right now, whether it's right or wrong, the global stock market is saying all of this anxiety, all of this talk of conscription, all of this talk of geopolitics, it's not worried about it and that uh, all of these fears are misplaced. So I make a couple of remarks about that. One is I take some cheer from it. I do not think for a second that stock markets are, as I say, perfect predictors of anything. Um, They recently sleepwalked us into the global financial crisis, or at least a decade and a half ago. So there's an example where they have got it wrong. But I think if the world situation was as bad as it's often being painted out by uh, army generals, and other commentators, prominent journalists, I don't think stock markets would be where they are today. Another barometer of global risk is the oil price. That's ticked up a little bit in recent days, but it's it's nothing dramatic. The oil price is basically unchanged since 2007. It goes up and down a lot, but it hasn't changed in any material way. If the Middle East in particular, but also the Russian situation, because there's a lot of oil involved in that conflict as well, oil and gas prices have been weaponized. If we were going to kick off into something very, very serious, or at least if market participants, God bless them, thought that we were about to kick off into something very, very serious, I think that the oil and gas price would be massively higher than it is today. These markets could be getting it wrong, as I keep on saying, but I take some heart from that. And I offer that as a Piece of encouragement for the weekend for those people who are depressed by the geopolitical situation, markets are telling you, don't worry about it, Jim. Do you take any sucker from that piece of analysis that I just presented there?
1: Yeah, interesting, Chris, that you should talk about anxiety. Uh, last night, I delivered my 34th consecutive annual CPD lecture to the Leinster Certified Public Accountant CPA. Okay. Um, wow. 34 time, years. I was time very flies, young. doesn't it? I was very young when I started, obviously. But You um, still are, Jim. You still even, are. Even during COVID, I did it remotely. It was quite amazing last night. I gave a, a rundown on what's happened, the world economy, the Irish economy, interest rates. I found last night in the q and I kept getting pulled off into the world of global geopolitics. And there were some people there expressing views that were... Pretty much describing what you've just been describing, Chris, a high level of anxiety and concern and bordering on depression about what's going on from a global geopolitical situation. And of course, if you spend too much time analyzing what's going on, you know, we've had in the last 18 months, I think seven military coups across Africa. We have savage wars going on in countries like Sudan at the moment. Obviously, the Ukraine situation, the Gaza situation, becomes more horrible by the day you look at uh, you know, what Putin is up to and what he's probably going to get up to Um, into the future and China, of course, you get really depressed about all the relationship between China and India. There's all sorts of stuff out there at the moment to get really concerned about. And I think the advice you'd have to give anybody for reasons of sanity is just don't go there to to any great extent because you could get yourself into a very, very dark hole. Um, I would uh, agree with you that when you look at the market performance at the moment, Um, It does actually give you a sense of some solace. Well, actually, there's some optimism out there. You know, there's some animal spirits still evident out there, which is good. But um, that global geopolitical backdrop and in a year with so many elections, it's going to become even more influential. But as you say, the market's totally unconcerned at this juncture. They continue to reach new highs. And you can express all the reservations in the world you want to about that. The markets are the markets. They do what they do. And at the moment, there's certainly a very high level of animal
3: spirits evident. Do you agree with the markets, Jim? Or do you think to coin that or to repeat that old phrase of Alan Greenspan's, ex-chairman of the Federal Reserve, do you think we're just through another period of completely irrational exuberance? I
1: feel irrational exuberance, I have to say. I think the markets have discounted way too much good news at this juncture. Uh, but listen, I'd probably have said the same thing this time last year, and I'd have been wrong. Uh, 2023 was a really good year for equity markets. Uh, perhaps the problem with people like you and me, Chris, is that we spend way too much time analysing economic data political developments and so on. Obviously, they're not huge drivers of the markets. But
3: yeah, I, I, I would have a sense of unease, I have to say. I have a healthy respect for markets, cognizant of the ways in the past that they have got it wrong. Um, I know that financial markets did sleepwalk into World War I. They were exuberant right up until the guns started firing almost. But I think about the differences in markets between now and then Back then, London was the only financial centre of any note in the world. That's no longer the case. London's important, but there are many other centres much more important. It's a much more diffuse market with many more players in it. It isn't just a select few investors in the, in London all speaking English to each other. I think that there are more and smarter investors Involved in world markets, if you think about the basis for the global financial system back then, it was the gold standard, that barbarous metal that you and I talk about occasionally. I think markets are far more sophisticated. They process far more information, and they don't do what we do, which is we we look at the news. And of course, the news is biased towards negativity, of which, as you rightly say, there is a considerable amount at the moment. But there's also a lot of good news that isn't discussed, isn't headlines, and and that's just the nature of news flow. So whilst I have heavily caveated my remarks about the exuberance of markets, I choose, and maybe it is just a choice, and maybe it's a foolish choice because I don't want to get anxious or depressed about the geopolitical situation. But I choose to believe that the markets are telling me something, and what they're telling me is to be concerned but not anxious and not to let it affect my mental health, and so that 's where i 'm going to going to to rest with with my opinion about that. Um, if you were to abstract from the geopolitical situation, I think the question of irrational exuberance is still relevant actually because if you were to just look at the old fashioned economic fundamentals and stop worrying about conflict risk. If there was no conflict risk, that would be great, wouldn't it? And just simply say, okay, well, what is the interest rate profits, economic growth, all of the things that you and I talk about all the time? What is the outlook for all of those things? One might be tempted to say again, that markets are being slightly irrational and discounting far too much good news. But again, uh, that's something that when irrational exuberance was first coined, markets kept going up for years. Eventually, they didn't, of course, but that's a different story. So I think I have some respect. And just for the sake of my own mental health, I'm going to choose to, to say that I think that there is some signal amidst the noise. Anyway, enough of that, Jim. And
1: Chris, just log into your pension fund every hour. Uh, well, cheers. that's exactly
3: what you shouldn't do with, um, exactly, I know. with, with your pension fund. <laughs> a piece of financial advice that I think we are allowed to give by the regulator is that you should look at your pension fund statement once a year at most, and possibly less often than that, again, for the sake of your own sanity and, and your own mental health, and indeed your own financial well-being, because if you look at it too often, you'll be tempted to do things, many of which will be silly. Jim, let's move on from that and get back to to the news flow. And I know that there have been several economic indicators locally, domestically, and overseas, very important ones over the last few days, that are not unrelated to what we're talking about. Um, it may well be that the U.S. stock market is a rationing exuberant, but boy, the U.S. economy, it's shooting the lights out, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is indeed, Chris. We got the fourth quarter GDP release earlier this week. annualized growth. The US economy for the year as a whole is now estimated to have expanded by 2.5% in real terms. That's up from 1.9% in 22. And if you think back on the narrative at the end of 22, coming into 23, what the official prognostications were for the US economy, there was very few people actually predicting a stronger rate of growth in 23 than in 22. and That's exactly what was delivered. And today, we got some data on personal spending in the States up by 0.7%, much stronger than expected, a pretty robust number, penning home sales up 8.3%. So this is the Ongoing story in the United States, its economic indicators continue to surprise on the upside. Uh, a couple of weeks back, we saw the labour market report for December, 216,000 jobs created. Uh, the US economy is doing bloody well. There's no doubt about that. And of course, this brings us into that whole debate again about, well, if it's so good, why are the uh, voters in the United States so pissed
3: off at Joe Biden? That is a deep psychological question, which we addressed in our last podcast, actually, or at least yeah, we tried yeah. to, with Professor of Neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin, Shane O'Mara, and the, the the conclusion we we reach there is that there are deep psychological roots for this disconnect between objective reality and blaming uh, Joe Biden for a set of economic ills that just aren't there. It it, it is an extraordinary an extraordinary thing. I think there is one economic as opposed to psychological dimension to this in that they're still blaming Joe Biden for the inflation because although inflation has come back a lot and another piece of very important news today was that the Federal Reserve, the US central bank's preferred measure of inflation. There are so many measures of inflation but the one that they say that they target has fallen for the first time in a few years to below 3%. And I think that's very, very important. And so you and I witter on about falling inflation and go, yippee. But the problem is, of course, is that we don't have prices falling. It is inflation that's falling. And so that when people, anybody, rich, poor or otherwise, go into the shops, they still see prices as being high. They're not going up so much anymore but they're still paying the higher prices as a result of the inflation of the last two years. And I think that pisses an awful lot of people off. And when I talk to people about their weekly shopping bills, going out to the pub, going out to the restaurant, uh, it really bugs people, not just in the United States. I was uh, in a pub in central London only earlier this week, and I paid £15 for two pints of beer. Very ordinary pub. And when things like that are happening... It makes you think. It's, you think that's cheaper than Dublin? Well, certainly parts of Dublin. Yeah, you must, you must be going to some very shishy joints in Dublin. This was a very ordinary boozer in central London.
1: Yeah, in, indeed. Uh, I yeah, that that int- conversation we had with Shane was really interesting about you know the psychology of people and and so on. But uh, the uh, the U.S. economic story and Biden's approval ratings. Uh, fascinate me I have to say because uh, you know in, in many ways the US economy has just blown the lights out over the last couple of years despite all of the
3: expectations. Um, I Can I just say one thing yeah. again I'm feeling yeah. optimistic today because it's a ni- nice bright sunny day here in the UK the first one we've had for a while and there's not a cloud in the sky so that ha- clearly has, has affected my own irrational exuberance and I'm going to refer you to the Uh, Deeper analysis that's been done over the Iowa and New Hampshire votes, which, of course, have been taken as just a shoo-in for Trump and probably a shoo-in for him to become president of the United States. People have looked at who voted what, where and when in a very deep statistical way. And have noticed that he's doing much worse than he did before when he won the presidency amongst independent voters. So yes, he's appealing to his base, probably more so than he ever did, but that's all he's doing. And that people are saying that if this, if, it's a big if, this was repeated in November, he might not actually win. Because the independents, of whom there are plenty in the swing states, um, clearly at the moment are saying they don't like him. So I'm going to go out on a limb and be really irrationally exuberant and say, I don't think Trump's going to win. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint
2: Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass***?
1: I hope you're right, Chris. I hope you're right. But uh, f- for forecasting a political event 10 months down the road is uh, pretty naive, to put it mildly. But um, f- I- Foolish
3: in the extreme, I think is <laughs> probably the, the right way to put it.
1: Chris, we have spoken many times, um, and we keep repeating comments about the futility of economic forecasting. And there was a time back in my earlier days when I tried to model the Irish economy as best I could, um, certainly nothing like as sophisticated as models that bodies like the ESRI and the central bank would use. But I, I try to model it and um, with varying degrees of success, mainly uh, failure rather than success. But I I have in the last decade, I've spent more and more of my time uh, focusing in on what I'm observing anecdotally. And I try and superimpose my anecdotal sense on top of what the statistics are showing and, and what economic relationships would suggest might happen okay but um, I have been on the road a little bit in recent weeks with a friend looking who's trying to buy an apartment looking at apartments and I think we mentioned this about two months ago on the podcast I certainly sensed that the housing market was starting to turn again you know having weakened which way Uh, prices prices starting to rise again yeah a bit of momentum coming back in this week we got the latest CSO house price data from um, for for Ireland Um, national average house prices up 0.8% during the month of November that's a year-on-year growth rate of 2.9% Dublin prices up 1.2% in the month That's 0.9% year on year because Dublin prices actually on a year on year basis had been in negative territory in recent months, back in positive territory. And outside of Dublin, prices increased by a half percent on the month, up 4.4% year on year. So there is life coming back into the housing market again. And I say unfortunately, because I don't think this is a positive and um, I, I've observed... Despite yeah. the, the
3: the house building stats, which showed 30-odd thousand completions or approvals or something? Yeah,
1: I, I'll get to that in a second, Chris, okay? Let me, Sorry. Let me, let me finish on the price piece, please. <laughs> I, Prices I and I, quantities, Jim. Prices and quantities, they I, go together. I don't regard this as a, a necessarily positive development, and um, I I have seen anecdotally as well um, an apartment on the market of 425,000 for a two-bedroom and the first bid that came in was 460 and it was a cash buyer uh you know there's still an extraordinary level of cash purchasing going on in this market and i think that reflects many things but it reflects the fact that there's 153 billion sitting on deposit in the irish banking system at the end of october so there's a lot of cash out there in the market that is causing problems and um as a consequence prices on the way up again and um I think that's going to be the trend. And in fact, I was doing a property webinar yesterday and I was asked the question. I shouldn't have answered it, but I was asked the question. I did. I was asked the question, what do I expect average house prices to do in 2024? And um, I stuck my finger in the air and said, I expect a 5% annual average increase during 2024 and I I say that based on the momentum I see in the housing market as we come into 2024 but also I have built in there the likelihood that in the second half of the year the European Central Bank will start to cut interest rates and mortgage costs will start to come down again so there's there's life in the old dog yet unfortunately Uh, you correctly pointed out what's been happening on the supply side of the equation. Uh, We got the four-quarter housing completions, residential unit completions um, earlier this week, Uh, 4,040 residential units delivered in the final quarter. That's 46.5% higher than a year earlier. And on an annual basis, we delivered 32,695 residential units last year that's up 10 percent on the previous year and some people i can hear them already arguing well actually housing completions you know it's it's a timing issue it's 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 a distorted measure etc etc but but i but I, i i don't buy that argument about the timing issue i mean if these were houses that were actually built in 2022 but actually didn't come on stream until 2023 so be it there's still houses coming into the system And supply is gradually improving. And I was reminded of something you said in um, a podcast some time back, that actually Sinn Féin might be the beneficiaries of all of the work the government has done in terms of turning the housing crisis around here (laughs) over the last few years. And, of course, uh, if Sinn Féin is in government, uh, the parties who are responsible will get no responsibility. And
3: um, our friends in Sinn Féin will look like the heroes They'll they'll get a lot of the credit and Mm -hmm. um, I suppose politics is a a business just like so many other aspects of life that uh, being in the right place at the right time is so important. The the significance and relevance of chance, luck, serendipity, uh, I think that Sinn Féin are going to inherit quite a house-building program. At least that's my read of the data. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And Chris, for
1: purposes of completion, um, I would also like to uh, refer to the CSO release at the preliminary quarter four GDP growth number. Okay, um, this will be revised in March as more and more. Um, economic evidence becomes available. But the preliminary estimate of the CSO is that in the fourth quarter, GDP contracted by 0.7% during the quarter and was 3.4% lower than a year earlier. And without providing the statistical evidence the CSO states that this was largely due to the underperformance of the multinational sector and that's something we have discussed you know we we've seen it come through on the merchandise export side we see it come through in terms of employment in some of the multinational sectors uh, that are supported by the IDA so all of this stuff is totally consistent with what we've been saying no surprises there but for last year as a whole, GDP contracted by 1.9%. Okay. And um, I mentioned in a, a couple of podcasts ago that I wouldn't be at all shocked if we saw another negative number in 2024. Basically, is that on two have we had two years in a row then? Uh no, I think twenty-two was positive. I can't remember now. Yeah, I think it was as far as I remember. Uh you see I don't know why I talk about GDP. It's such an irrelevant measure of Ireland. Um, and, and I do know modified domestic demand in 2022 was certainly positive. Uh,
3: but I think GDP was positive in 22. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on. Um, any other data points that you want to talk talk to us about? Nah, that's pretty much it, Chris. Okay. Uh, the final thing that I just wanted to talk about today, because we've promised to do so several times, Uh, over the course of the next while this political year is immigration because everything that i read from uh, all sorts of commentators analysts and political commentators etc say that all of these elections in the west at least are going to be dominated by one thing and one thing alone and that's immigration and i think everybody knows why that is the case It, it is a big salient issue in every economy that we looked at look at including the uk here and ireland there with you Um, but it's also a big part of trump's campaign as well and i was struck when we were talking with shane the shane omara professor at uh, tcd um he was trying to urge us to uh, listen more to other people who disagree with us when we were trying to ask why are people's beliefs so fact free so at variance with objective truth and we, we were talking about all sorts of different issues from the economy all the way through to things like immigration and asking why is immigration become such a salient issue and there are lots of drivers of it of course racism is, is part of it part of it but there are lots of non-racist issues as well there is there are questions of capacity about how much is what is the right level of immigration for, for any given society and economy, and there's also the psychological aspects of people just don't like too much change. And uh, in the spirit of trying to listen to what other people say, I was thinking about the offline conversation we had with Shane. We didn't record this bit in which I was talking to him about people moaning in london about about immigration and it's something like 40 47% of londoners are not british born actually and so it's so it is a very high number whether it's too high i'm i'm not going to opine today but i noted the fact that people in the uk are moaning a lot about immigration i don't think they're moaning as much as the newspapers say they are i think that's the first point i think it's an obsession with the right wing media rather than an obsession of the people. But nevertheless, there are some citizens in the UK, clearly very exercised. I think they're a smaller minority than is generally given credence. But what do I know? The the thing that made me try to understand what these people who are anti-immigration, I'm never going to Uh, Engage with people who are just telling me who who just reveal themselves to be racist. That strikes me as an exercise in futility. You are never going to change minds there. It's the people who worry about it being too much from an economic and social perspective, no matter what ethnicity, color, race, religion, whatever. That there are no racial uh, characteristics to their uh, suspicions about immigration. And I narrated a story about going down the Edgware Road from about where it turns off, going towards Paddington, going down towards Marble Arch only the other day actually and virtually every shop front didn't have english as a shop sign it was usually i think arabic but again i wouldn't be quite sure i didn't hear a word of english spoken along that road the only english i actually heard being shouted was the um the down and outs under underneath a a road bridge a, a flyover that is halfway down that bit of the road and the next English I heard spoken was several hundred yards into Oxford Street, having turned left at the bottom of the Edgware Road. And that was spoken in a French accent. So it was striking that um, I was trying to sense that if, if I was somebody that was concerned about immigration, this is something that could bother me. That a, a part of London had turned into a place that I didn't recognize. And it's a part of London I know very well. I've known very well since, since the 1970s and trying to therefore see where, where people are coming from. And then I thought about it some more. And I said, nah, you know, this is, this is actually a good thing. And then I read Gideon Rackman in the FTO. I know you've read, and I'm going to allow you to tell us a little bit about, A, what he said, and B, what he thinks. But my, my sense was, look, immigration does bring issues that need managing, but net-net, it's an, unambiguously a good thing, and we should welcome it. And yes, I am going to listen to people who worry about the Edgware Road no longer looking like a familiar part of Britain. But am I going to worry about it? Am I going to say it's a bad thing? No and no. So that's where I'm at with it now, Jim. Where are you at? And what did you think of that Rackman article? Uh,
1: yeah, I thought Gideon Rackman's article was fantastic. I mean, he was dispelling all of the myths, many of the myths about um, immigration and the evils of immigration and talking about the positive contribution that immigrants have made uh, described the stats you mentioned there on London with over 40 percent uh, being um, n- non-native as such um I, I I just thought it was a piece that everyone interested in this subject should actually read because he argues very logically using statistics using facts and I think Gideon Rachman is fantastic anyway you know everything he does his podcasts his writing are fantastic so he made some very compelling arguments as to why immigration has been a major benefit to the UK economy and that many uh, all of the problems that some people attribute to immigration um, actually have nothing to do with immigration so it's a very sensible sane piece uh, that I think makes just a very simple argument that actually immigration has had a seriously beneficial impact on the UK economy. And if you think about the the National Health Service, if you think about agriculture, um, you know, and, and and he was talking about, uh, I think, three experiences he had. Uh, one was a taxi. One was a an appointment with a consultant. I forget what the third one was, but all three people he met had one thing in common. None of them were English. And yet... All three provided a fabulous service to them as part of a modern dynamic economy. But I I totally take your point, Chris, that uh, elections around the world this year will be heavily influenced by immigration. And I think the most interesting election in that regard will be the European elections in June because the performance of the right will be absolutely fascinating to watch. And that performance of the right would be heavily
3: driven by anti-immigration sentiment. We talked a lot with Shane about where beliefs come from. And once we acquire them, they stay very sticky and change only very slowly. And I think beliefs about immigration come from all sorts of sources. And as I said, and as we discussed with Shane, we need to engage with people respectfully and in a listening way to their views that are different from ours in order to be able to try and get the debate uh, onto a fact, factual basis. Uh, We don't claim to have exclusive access to the facts and we are prepared. We think maybe it's a conceit to change our minds in the, in the light of new information, but it's also a case. I think that when it comes to belief that we get to, sometimes we get to choose our beliefs and that walk down Edgware road led me to think that I could choose To say yes, I'm listening to your concerns about this part of London and all sorts of different aspects of immigration and the way the UK looks and sounds and behaves today, and decide to be very worried about it. Or you could just make a different choice, actually. And you could just say and just choose, as I think I'm doing, and say, no, I don't think this is anything to worry about. There are no negative consequences such that I would become anti-immigration. Yes, there are consequences that need to be managed, managed carefully and managed properly. And arguably, that's where the debate should be focused on better management of the consequences of immigration to make it a a more positive experience for all concerned. But I think choosing to believe the facts, choosing to believe, well, to answer the question, should I be worried about this in in a very different way? I think the answer is no. I don't think we should be worried about it. No, it's funny. I, I stayed
1: in the Edgeway Road for a week last summer in an Airbnb, and I was struck by exactly the same thing. As you walk down, uh, you could be in any city in the world, really. Uh, certainly not. And
3: so, so what?
1: So what? So what? Exactly. So what? I, I certainly didn't have a problem. I thought it was a, an interesting cultural experience. Um, I see Britain is about to lose one of its um, better um, imported immigrants. Jorgen Klopp. Yes, I wonder if he'll go home. Apparently, he's not going to
3: manage another team in England, so he's going home. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, w- I wonder who they'll get. Um, it's going to be a tough ask to go and manage that club now, isn't it? It is indeed. Ho- hopefully, they will pick an inferior manager. Um, yes. Let's. Uh, have you got any? Have you you've got QPR's manager in mind by any chance? <laughs> uh, we we
1: have a Spaniard managing us at the moment, and he's doing okay for a team that's struggling.
3: Isn't it really curious that the premiership is dominated by non-British managers and coaches? what, What does that say about management culture in the UK, or does it? I'm not sure what it says, if it says anything at all, but it certainly correlates with the observation that academics have made in their study of British management quality generally across all different industries and sectors, is that it's worse than the global average. Wow. On that note, Jim, I think we've run out of time. Um, Okay, Chris. Have a great weekend. Yeah, likewise. Talk next week. Speak soon, mate. Cheers. Um